Well, amen. We just got to sing and worship and celebrate God's incredible good news of forgiveness for broken people. And we're going to pick up in 2 Kings where we left off. And you're going to find that 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7 is equally about what we just sang about with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't remember, we've been talking about a, a country to the north of Israel called Syria. And we have found that God loves the Gentiles. Gentiles like, like Naaman have come to believe in him and be baptized by him. That was just a couple chapters ago. And now the king of Syria, a guy named Ben-Hadad, is going to come in and he is going to besiege the king of the north. His name is Joram. And he's capital city of, of, of the northern section. Oh! oh, my goodness. I've fallen and I can't get up. So Joram has really fallen a ways from God because he has disobeyed God at every turn. He's pushed God away. And God has been warning him through the prophet Elisha, who has said, if you keep resisting God, you keep pushing God away, and you're going to find that he's going to give you over to the consequences of that. He doesn't care. So sure enough, Ben-Hadad has come in place from Syria and is now pushing him into place. Meanwhile, just outside the city are four lepers who've been ostracized by the city because they're lepers, and they're stuck between Ben-Hadad's besieging and the city's famine, and yet they are going to discover the good news that can save everyone in the city. Except they decide to keep it to themselves. Until one of them turns to the other and says this, this isn't right. This is not right, guys. We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. And we're remaining silent. It's never right to remain silent about good news. It's never right to remain silent about, about good news. If you find good news and you have people who are not, have bad news, you need to share the good news with them. That's what these lepers find as the heroes of our story. As we walk through the story today, we're going to have some bad news. Then we're going to look at some good news. But even that is not the full message until we experience shared news. We're going to discover God's main message to us, to the people in history, and what our purpose is. Why does God have us in our families, in our neighborhoods, and knowing people who work with us and people who, who, who go to soccer games with us? What does he want us to do with the message he's been given to us, to those who are watching. We'll start with the bad news, because the bad news is really bad. That's why we rated this, this uh, service today PG-13, because wait till you see how bad it gets. You see, when bad news comes into your life, like it has with Joram, we can blame God for the bad news, <laughs> even though God's been warning him for six generations. When bad news comes your way, you can blame God. Why are you letting this happen? God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. And we're all tempted to do it. Or you can let the bad news in your life make you hungry for good news. Hungry for God's love, his forgiveness, his wisdom, and his presence. So we show what happens. We begin in chapter 6, and it's pretty unbelievable how they're going to blame Joram, blaming God for the bad news. So it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army. And he went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine because of that besieging in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it. Now, Ben-Hadad is not just some Bible character. 
The Bible records actual history. We see that from the Bible, but there's also evidence outside the Bible. There's a steel called the Zakur steel that actually references extra-biblical information that references Ben-Hadad III and some of the exploits, including his attacking of Israel. And besieging was a very common practice to starve out your enemy. So in Gath, they uncovered the ruins of a besieging. So let me show you what that looks like. So this is not the same one as Samaria, but they found these. Just like this, you had a city. The, the opposing army or commander would come and dig a giant trench all the way around the city. So you can't get to your water. You can't get to your fields. There's no way out of there. And if you tried to get out of there, all of the opposing army was in the, the siege trenches, and they're going to come out and kill you. And they would just wait you out. Now, you're going to see the people blame God for the bad news, despite Elisha's warning of them. But really what has happened is that God has, has removed his hand of protection. They have said, God, we don't need you. God, we don't want you. God, we're fine without you. So God removes his hand of protection. And these are the consequences of their actions. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Iria, uh, gathered his army, went up and besieged Samaria, and a great famine struck them. How bad is the famine? Well, indeed they besieged it until, here was the economic conditions, you want to eat a donkey's head for dinner was going to cost you 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings. Yummy. Five shekels of silver. I mean, things have gotten bad. Now, just to give you a sense of the economics of that, a donkey's head, right? So let me show you what a donkey's head looked like and how much that cost. You would actually have to get the money in place to pay for that thing. So here's your donkey's head, right? Mmm, dinner, honey, what are you serving? That sounds delicious. And in those days, you could get an indentured servant, a slave, that you would buy for your whole life for 50 shekels. And you're spending 80 shekels for the head of a donkey to eat. And if that's not bad enough, in case you want a little dessert, right? Yeah, wouldn't we like that uh, dove dung uh, chocolate mousse that we have this evening? Oh, that sounds fabulous. They were paying, look at that, five shekels for dove dung. That's how desperate it is. And again, archaeologists have found these dove containers. It almost looks like a piece of pottery where the doves would come in, land in those different sections there, and then all the dung would be deposited right there in the base. Things are so desperate, having moved so far away from God, God removing his hand of protection, this is all they have to eat. But it gets even worse. The most graphic is still to come. The king, King Joram, is walking along the wall one day, and he looks down and he sees two women who are fighting. And now we're in utter despair. The king of Israel is passing by on the wall, and a woman cried out to him saying, Help, O Lord, my king! He said, this tells you everything you know about the king. Well, if the Lord's not going to help you, what can I do about it? He's got no faith in God. He has not trusted God. And that's his attitude. All right, well, where, where could I find help for you? From the threshing floor or the wine press? You know, we're just being crushed like grapes. We're being crushed like the threshing floor. Where would I help find, find help for you anyway? Then he says, well, you know what? All right, well, tell me, what's troubling you? Let's see if I can help. Wait till you see what's troubling her. It is disturbing. So she answered, Well, that woman right there said to me yesterday, You give me your son, and we'll eat him today, and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son, we ate him, and I said to her the next day, Today, give me your son, and we'll eat him. 
and she hid her son. Will you make her find her son so we can boil him and eat him? And King Joram, who has made a practice of child sacrifice, is grossed out by this. So much so that the king responds to her. He's going to tear his clothes in response. Here's what he says. It happened that when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes, he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. It's the closest to surrender we've seen to the king. Then he said... Should I be hungry for good news in God? Oh, no, 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 no. He's still going to blame God for the bad news. That's right. God, do to me also if the head of Elisha, the son of Savat, remains on him today. Now, question. Would God be good if he had given them a 20-year warning to this? Would God be fair if he had warned them 30 years ago this is going to happen? Would God be fair if he says, be careful, don't keep doing this 100 years? See, God told them 400 years ago this would happen if they kept pushing him away in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me show you what it says. It's word for word what's happening here this day. Deuteronomy 28.15. Deuteronomy written in 1270 B.C., We're now in Elisha's ministry, 832 B.C. 400 years earlier, through Moses, God said, It shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, then these curses will come upon you when I remove my hand of protection. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord has given you as a gift, in the siege and desperate straits in which the enemy will distress you. 400 years warning, please don't Go this way. Please don't do this. And yet, they just keep doing it. So, the king says, I'm killing off Elisha. Turns to one of his executioners and says, go find Elisha and you kill him today. The camera scene changes. Now we're at Elisha's. Elisha's sitting in a room with some of the elders of the city. And Elisha turns to those elders and says, hey, There's a messenger coming to kill me. Elders? And here's Elisha's nickname for the king. Do you see how this son of a murderer, his dad was a murderer, he's a son of a murderer, this guy's a scoundrel, and now he's blaming me and God for what's happening? You know what? He's coming over here to take off my head. How delusional are these people? So he says, but by the way, when the messenger comes, look, when the messenger shows up, just shut the door. Hold him fast behind the door. And we're going to wait. His master, the king's a few feet behind him. I'll talk to the king. I just want to make sure I keep my head, (laughs) literally. And while he was talking with them, sure enough, the messenger showed up, and they locked the door. He couldn't get in. And then the king shows up and says, Surely this calamity, this bad news is from the Lord. Why should I wait any longer for the Lord's salvation? It's bad news. And we often blame God for the bad news. We keep chewing on the same old dung habits and patterns and idols. And even when we get to the end of those idols, we don't turn back to God. I got a chance to go to Africa several years ago. And and while we were there, we got a chance to visit with some villagers. And our leaders said, you know, they don't get to eat meat very often here. 
And I want you to know this is a really privilege and honor that they're giving you the meat they never get to eat. I'm like, oh my goodness, we're so grateful, we're so thankful. They bring us this delicious pile of, of white rice and this beautiful, just gorgeous looking beef stew. And there's a, a language bearer, so it's mostly just kind of nodding. And I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you. And I stuck my fork into that beef stew. I'm like, oh, it's going to be so delicious. Mmm, mmm, it was. Mmm, mmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> 15 minutes I chewed on that piece of meat. Finally, I'm like, I got the napkin out. Hey, by the way, what are we eating here? Donkey. It was like chewing on an old piece of tire. And I chewed for 15 minutes, and I didn't make any headway into that meat. Because you don't, you don't kill a donkey until after you have worked it to death. And that's not the donkey head. How much meat are you getting out of a donkey head? And yet when we get to the end of ourselves and the end of our habits and the end of our wisdom and the end of our, our idols, we're chewing on the same stuff. Joram's chewing on the same patterns he's been chewing on for years. He's not turning to God for the answer. I was out in the uh, atrium a few weeks ago and I had uh, a woman in our church who was coming out of a Bible study. And I was just talking to a couple of people, and I said, hi. And she came over. She said, I don't think we've met yet. I've been coming for several years. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry I haven't met you. She said, i got to tell you, our family was going through a real challenging time about six years ago. And you talked to my husband during that time. And I'm like, Ugh. I don't remember that. I said, well, tell me a little bit more. I talked to a lot of people. And then she began to give me a few more details. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that conversation. Yeah, didn't know your husband at all. We met in the hearth room. She said, yeah. She said, i got to tell you, we were in a bad moment in our life and a bad moment in his career and a bad moment in his job and, and you so encouraged him to reach out to God, to lean into God and to trust God. We've been coming to her eyes ever since and because he and we turned to God during that time of bad news and continue to learn about God and learn about the Bible at Horizon, I'm telling you, where we are now in our marriage, where we are now as a family, it is just Amazing. I want to thank you and thank the church for what God has done in our family. Because in a moment of bad news, they were hungry for God as the source of the good news. Well, that moves us from the bad news. It's pretty bad, right? I mean, it's pretty bad. We now move to the good news. How's Elisha going to answer the question, why should you wait on the Lord's salvation? That's where we get to the good news. And, and like all good news, the good news is almost too good to be true. It's just too, too hard to believe what Elisha's going to say. This is so shockingly good news that you and I be like, yeah, right. So here's what happens. Elijah says, well, king, I got great news. God can deliver you from what you can't deliver yourself. So here's what he says. It's going to be banquet time tomorrow. Elijah said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, good news isn't coming 300 years from now or 1,000 years from tomorrow. It's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow, about this time actually, a sea of flour, that's like a gallon or two, and that's fine flour, the best food you've ever tasted, the finest flour, the hardest to access. You're going to get the best food ever, two gallons of it, and it's only going to cost you a shekel. We'll talk about from inflation to deflation. And two seas of barley for one shekel. And you're going to find that not way over there, not someplace, it's going to be right here at the gates of Samaria. Right. To which the executioner, the officer, 
who's with the king, Mr. Skeptic, he looks at him and goes, right, yeah. So that officer on whom the king had leaned answered the man of God saying, look, if God could make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Nonsense. To which Elisha looks him in the eye and says, listen, in fact, you are going to see it with your own two eyes. And because you're unbelief, you ain't going to taste a bit of it. A shekel for fine flour, a shekel for barley. So what is a shekel? <laughs> you have all these terms. What does that even mean? Well, a shekel, they found that's a weighting system. So you'd actually have almost like marble or golf ball-sized shekels. So it's how much silver you'd have on one side versus the shekel on the other. So there's what one shekel looks like. There's what two shekel weight system would look like. And there's what eight shekels look like. And you would put your silver or gold on the other side to weigh out on a scale. And that's how the system works. It's like you're going to put pennies on the dollar and get the best food you've ever had. It's going to be buffet time. No more time for dub dung. It's time for fine flour. Because God brings good news into your life. And it's going to happen right here at the gates of Samaria. And they have found the archaeological reigns of Samaria. And here in Samaria, as they have dug down, they have found the actual gates of what the city looked like probably during the time of Joram. And you'll see there, you'll see there's going to be a, a pool. Go to the next slide. Pool there is a tower, gate area. And so here is this city with all of this good news and, and all, I mean, all this terrible news going on. And, and Elisha's promising by tomorrow everything's going to change if they trust God for his good news. Would you be like the officer? I think I might. Or would you trust God has good news even when it doesn't make any sense? Why is it hard to believe good news? I think the same reason our friends who are skeptics have trouble believing uh, good news is the same reason we sometimes have trouble believing good news. One, it's too good to be true. In fact, when you hear us speak at Horizon, if the message doesn't make you go, that, that can't be true, it's just too good to be true, then you're starting to hear what the message talks about. If you hear us saying, well, the Bible tells me basically be a good person. <sighs> Every religion says that. That's not good news. That, that is not what the Bible says. That is not good news at all. The message is we have done the wrong thing. We don't live up to our own standards. And God, seeing that we're woefully short, our good deeds are woefully inadequate, and our bad deeds are woefully worse than we think, God's good news is he died for us anyway, he forgives us anyway, and we can live in ultimate peace and surrender outside of condemnation, because God forgives us our past, our present, and our future. And we, not only, who just like, would like to not be executed, God says, I'm going to give you treasure galore and the finest flower in the greatest banquet called the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what I'm offering. Well, that's, that sounds too good to be true. Yes, now you're talking about the Bible. Others like, well, yeah, but I can't believe it because I'm not worthy of it. And you know what? Uh, until I earn my way to be worthy of God's love... I'm not sure that, that, that he would let me in because I've done some really bad sins. To which God says, cheer up. You're worse than you think. <laughs> You're not worthy of it. And I know all your secrets. And I died for you anyway. Others are self-righteous. I don't need it. I'm basically a good person. I'll stand before God and, and God will see the good things I've done and the bad things I've done and the scales will all wait out. God's like, uh-uh. No, they won't. Sometimes we can't hear good news when you're surrounded by bad news. It's just like I can't see God's favor and plan in this because it's just so much bad news going around me. 
God wants you to trust his good news that he can bring deliverance. He can make you a royal family member even when you were a beggar. I told you the whole story is about the lepers. Are we ever going to get to them? Yeah, we get to them now. Because we move from the bad news to the good news, and now we move to the shared news. Because we have these four lepers who have been pushed outside the city because they have leprosy, and they are going to be at the forefront of hearing this good news that Elisha's prophesied. Here's what happens. We get to shared news. Remember the main point? Guys, it's not right to remain silent about the good news we found. we got to get this out of here. So they see this tent, right? So this is kind of what the tents of those days might have looked like, where all the Syrian army is there. Now, they're besieging them. So they got like six months of food for their army, a massive army. They got gold. They got silver. The king is there. There is no lack of resources here from, from Ben-Hadad. And Joram, he doesn't have access to that. And in there is silver and gold. And silver in those days, it's interesting, it's like little uh, chunks. And so when you're putting on the scale, you do a little chunk, bigger chunk to balance it out. Big chunks of gold. These weren't necessarily coinage in those days, just big pieces of, of gold that they would have in these tents. And earrings. They found earrings during these days. Here's what the earrings look like. See, they would poke them through. And so this is just, there's bounty, there's food, there's blessing, but there's no way we can get access to it. But the, uh, the lepers have a brainstorm. I love this brainstorm. So there were four leprous men at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? This is a bad plan. If we say, let's go into the city, well, a famine is in the city, we'll just die there. Well, that's a bad option. If we sit here, we die. I got it. Let's go and look at this keyword. How do you find God's news? Let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. At least they might keep us alive. Then we'll live, and if they kill us, well, we're going to die anyway. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they'd come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one's there. The Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear something that wasn't there. God uses a sound, just one little sound, to solve the problem. It was the sound of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army. So the, the, the Syrians, hearing a sound of an army, said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the Egyptians to attack us. Run away! Run away! Run away! Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, all their tents, all their horses, all their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they start finding all this bounty. They ate. Oh, my goodness, I haven't had a good meal. And they drank. Oh, my goodness, the best wine I've ever had. And they carried away silver and gold and clothing. And then they went and hid them. Then they came to the next tent and carried some away and went and hid it. They have gone from beggars to living like kings in mere minutes. And yet they choose to hide the gold, the silver, and the good news. This is not shared news. And they start to talk to each other. And they go, this isn't right. This would be like everyone you know having cancer. 
and you find the cure to cancer and you don't share it with others. This is not right. They say to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. And if we remain silent, it's wrong. In fact, if we wait until morning light and they find out about this, some punishment's going to come upon us because we didn't share the good news. So therefore, let us go to tell the king's household. So they went and they knock on the gate to the gatekeepers and say, hey, we got to talk to the king. Right, the lepers want to talk to the king. Yeah, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly, no one was there. Not even a human. Some horses and donkeys. The tents are all intact. The gatekeepers called out and they told the king's household. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me tell you what's really going on. This is all a trap. It's a trap. Let me tell you now what the Syrians have done to us. They know we're hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field. And then we come out to the city. They're going to catch us alive and kill us. And we get into the city. And one of the servants answered and said, could we try? We're starving to death. Let several men take five of the remaining horses that are left in the city, the ones we haven't eaten yet. Look, they either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left, they die out there, or indeed I say they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. Either way, whether they die there or they die here with us, let's give it a shot. Can we send them out and see? Therefore, they sent two chariots with the horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army and said, all right, fine, go see. And they went after the Jordan. And indeed, all the road was, they they had to follow the trail. It's not just they left everything here. They tried to take a few things with them. It's like a whole trail of garments and weapons as they're kind of scurrying off and running off. The Syrians had thrown away all their haste, all their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out from the city and plundered the tents of the Syrians. And a sea of fine flour was sold for one shekel. And two seas of barley could be bought for one shekel, according to the work of the Lord. The main message of the Bible is not just that you don't get judgment. It's not just that God forgives you and that's good news. It's that as somebody who deserves judgment, who's rebelled against God like Joram, you can now feast like a king. You go from being a beggar who can't provide for yourself to living like royalty because in Christ you are a joint heir with Christ because of what he's done for you. And you can't take that and hide it to yourself and just come to church and feed yourself and get lots of, of Bible knowledge and just feel really good and worship God. That's all great. But if you're not sharing the good news with other people near you who are starving in their own bad news, it's not right to remain silent about good news. A beggar who's found food and treasure needs to go tell other beggars who are starving that they need food and treasure. Appropriately, winsomely, when the timing is right, but we've got to share the good news. I don't know how many of you saw the movie 13 Lives. It's on Amazon Prime. It's based on a true story of what happened in Thailand. There's a coach of a soccer team and 12, 8 to 12-year-old boys. They finish up a soccer game and decide to go exploring. So they take their bikes over to a cave in Thailand. They decide to go exploring into the cave. It starts raining outside. But it's not any rain. It's the beginning of typhoon season. It's going to rain for hours, then days, then weeks, and often for up to six months it's going to rain. When they turn around to make their way out of the cave, the water has consumed the entire entrance to the cave, and now there is a wave of water pushing them deeper and deeper and deeper into the cave. Their parents that evening will be 
worried that they haven't seen their kids. They will find all of their bikes right outside the cave. That water will keep coming down from the, from the heavens, and it will keep pushing them in farther and farther. They will eventually be an eight-hour swim into the cave with canals that are only as wide as your shoulders and the turbulent water swishing through there that even the most experienced Navy SEAL cannot handle. The news goes out to all the world that there are maybe 13 lives somewhere stuck in the back of the cave and there's no other way out except this entrance. And the water has pushed them and pushed them and pushed them and everyone thinks they're dead and they're gone and they've starved to death. It's now been multiple days. There's no way they're still alive. The Navy SEALs from Thailand have made their way in several hours into the water in the midst of all the water and all the darkness. And, and even they're having panic attacks. This is such a difficult cave dive. And they come out and they say, we, we ran a cable three hours into the water. We can't find them. They're not there, but we didn't find any remains either. So they get this firefighter from England hears about these kids that are lost. And as a part-time hobby, he's a cave rescuer. So he comes down, he's like, guys, I think I can help. The Navy SEALs are like, right. He's like, no, this is what I do. Eventually, after being mocked and rejected, he, he gets in the water. He follows their cable for several hours. He has to take off his tank several times and push it in front of him as he weaves his way through. And after an eight-hour swim, one direction, he comes up into an air pocket. As he comes up, he hears the voice of children. Rescue? Is it time to go home now? And that coach had taught them how to keep their breathing down, how to keep themselves calm for the last few days, and they've been sharing little nuggets of food that they had between all of them. But they are starving. He says, well, I can't get you out now, but we know you're alive. We're going to bring supplies. So he comes back and gives the news, and now the news goes out to the whole world. People start coming in to prepare meals for the rescuers. People come out with bamboo. See, the water's still coming down. They put pumps and they got to pump water away from the mountain to keep. See, that water is still inching closer. And they're down to a cul-de-sac. There's no other way out. And as that water is inching up, they have maybe a week, maybe a few days before they get totally drowned. They bring supplies in there, but they can't figure out how are we going to help these kids who are lost be found? How are we going to help those who are starving get back to their family again? Even some of the divers, the Navy SEALs that make it through there, they panic in the water because of the darkness and because of the water swishing around and banging you up. Like, There's no way we're going to get Kit out. He will panic. An eight-hour dive in the darkness? He's got to not move? They get so desperate that in the last couple days, he calls a, a friend of his from England. He says, I need your help. Why have you called me yet? Everybody else in the world is there. Only part of that. People are outside making meals, people outside with bamboo, diverting water and pumps. He comes down, he's like, well, I need to talk to you alone. We're not telling anyone except the, the minister of Thailand my plan, because it's unethical, it's illegal, it's never been done before, and my best case scenario is we get three out of the 13. But if we don't do anything, they all die. Well, this sounds horrible. He says, well, I called you because you're not only a volunteer cave diver, but you're also a pediatric anesthesiologist. You've got to teach us how to put these kids to sleep so that they can be asleep the entire time we swim them eight hours in the darkness. It's like this has never been done before. They didn't even tell the parents. It was such a risky plan, never been done. They did tell the governor of Thailand, and they said, well, it's that or nothing. They put the kids in wetsuits one at a time. The divers would have to inject them every three hours 
to make sure they stayed asleep. They zip-tied the kids' hands and feet so they could move them to, to deal with the trauma of just dealing with the life-threatening conditions that the divers were under. They called them packages just so they would keep their trauma level down. Each kid at a time, they would take him, and they'd been swimming him through the darkness, moving through, moving the tanks, pulling the kids along, reach, giving them another shot, water being diverted outside, meals being performed outside, people praying outside. We got to save that which was lost. And they come to the first air pocket after a six to eight hour swim, and they come up out of the water. They turn the first child around, and he's alive. They take off his mask, and he's resuscitated. We got one! They send it in another team. Second one's alive. They only hope for three. Third one's alive. Fourth one's alive. Fifth one's alive. Sixth one's alive. Seventh's alive. Eighth's alive. Nine alive. Ten alive. Eleven. Twelve. All 13 lives were saved. Those who were lost, those who were thought to be dead, those who were starving, they were all saved because a whole community, an entire world said there's one thing we need to focus on right now. We need to put all our resources on right now. We have got to save that which is lost and share the news that you can be rescued. And that is the message Jesus came to the world for. The great commission that we are spiritually hungry and we're feasting on idols that will never satisfy, feasting on our own good works that will never reach heaven. And God says we need to go and share the good news with our friends, with our community, with our neighbors. And the reason we built our church and designed our church the way it is, it's built on that idea that we have friends who are spiritually lost and spiritually hungry and we have found this bread. We found these treasures. And the whole organization is mobilized on saving those and sharing with those who are lost. Some of us are cave divers. We're going in. We're the ones having the conversation. We're the ones finding people who are far, far from God, who like us, and eventually we start talking about faith. Others are like, you know, I'm not really good at that. But, man, I can, I can, uh, I can divert some water. <laughs> I, I can put some gas into the pump. I'm going to pump out some water if it will help. I'm going to serve you some meals. I'm inviting some friends to church. You guys do the heavy work, but I'll at least invite a friend who we've had some good spiritual conversations. See, as a church, we're trying to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible and the community of growing Christ followers. We have two services. What in the Bible words would be an evangelism service and a discipleship service. We call it our exploring and our equipping service. Starting in about an hour. We got a brand new series called Down to a Science. It's designed for your skeptical friends to hear great music. We got some Jackson 5 music going on. We got some, some uh, three birds. Uh, incredible music that your friends are going to be able to hear the gospel clearly presented through the science of, of, of astronomy and biology and biochemics, biochemical uh, uh, research. And so maybe for you, part of you kind of rescuing the losses, I got a friend, I'm going to invite him to one week on that. Maybe part of you are saying, listen, that's not really me, but boy, you know what? In order for the people to be here sitting and listening, I want to be helping the children's ministry. I want to make their kids have a great time so they want to come back the next week. I want to volunteer and be a greeter because I want to people come to the door. They've been at church for 20 years. I want to be part of saying, hey, glad, glad to have you here. Maybe you're watching online, one of our online audience. You're like, I love watching this service. Maybe it's like I don't really attend nearby or only get into town once or every six to eight weeks. Financially, I want to be part of investing in the tools needed to help bring the news to the lost. When we as a community come together, you have a unique voice, you have a unique talent, you have a unique passion. It takes all of us to share the news that God wants to know, God wants us to know and our friends to know about, about what he's done for us, that God brought deliverance. So I think the lesson we learn from these 
these lepers is simple. Share the good news like a beggar who's found treasure. See, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Maybe like Chad, I got some talents and skills and, and I got some resources. I want to be part of what's going on here. I can feel what God's doing in my life. I want the same thing happen to other people's life. We have a, a class coming up called Wire to Serve. We'll talk about what your giftingness is, what are your spiritual gifts, what are your talents, what are your passions, and what are the needs of the church, and how can you be part of this team that's not, hey, we, Chad, I go to your church. No, we, we go to our church. We're part of our mission, the Great Commission. Let's be part of sharing the good news like beggars who found treasure. Let's pray. Actually, let's not. Let's not. Actually, I forgot about something, right? <laughs> Wait a second. Whatever happened to that officer? Whatever happened to that officer? Huh. I guess we ought to go to the end of the story. Oh, so the king, having heard about the food, tells the officer to be in charge of crowd control. All right, everyone, stand in line. Everyone stay calm. Everyone stay calm. Follow my direction. Same guy he leaned on on the gate. And as he's trying to get crowd control done, seeing all the food God provided, the people trampled him to death in the gate. And he died. It's a sad story. Just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him, so it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, to see is a barley for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel. And he had said, if God opens the windows of heaven, could he do such a thing? But God did open the windows of heaven, and he came to us through the person of Jesus. And if we don't believe and reject it, we'll get trampled by our own unbelief. But if we believe, we live like kings. Now let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you chose to present yourself with broken people, with impatient people, with people who break promises to ourselves and our loved ones, and yet you came to make us children of God. Teach us how to winsomely and wisely share that message with friends we work with and live with, and may we live in the countenance of your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here.